We continue our series titled Vital Signs, and we're going to pick it up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Vital Signs, chapter 1, verse 3, pointed us to three things that we should be examining ourselves with regard to individually as Christians and really as a church. And it's really simple, isn't it? It's faith, love, and hope. And those are the three things we've been looking at. Today I'd like to focus on one of those key signs. It's love, how to love. Everyone is in favor of love across the globe. Doesn't matter if you believe in God, don't believe in God, what religion you are. Everybody loves love. But chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians describes love like this. Constantly bearing in mind, he's talking about the Thessalonians, your work of faith and labor of love. Labor, the very word I used here refers to toil. Hard work and real love, true love, the kind of love that Scripture is talking about is work. There's challenges in loving. In fact, there's challenges even in loving people within the church community. And really, that's the focus of our text today. How do we love one another within the church? And I'm just going to look at it in three aspects. First, Love is never done. Secondly, love is godlike. And love is, thirdly, our witness. Love is never done, it's never finished. So it begins in verse 9. Now, as to the love of the brethren, now, love of the brethren, the ESV just calls it brotherly love because it's the word you know, it's Philadelphia, you know, love of the brothers. And it's talking about a family kind of love, the kind of love that siblings have for each other. So it says, as to the love of the brethren, we have no need to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. The Thessalonians were a very loving church. Uh, In fact, we have hints of that in many places, not only what Paul says here in verse 9, but they were a generous church. They gave funds to the Macedonian church, which we know uh, was poverty-stricken. Later on, it uh, appears they were instrumental in providing church to uh, the uh, uh, funds, rather, to the church in Jerusalem. And what's more, they shared God's word. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, the word of God has sounded forth from you throughout the region. Certainly, their testimony of who they were as a church, but the hint there is that they were interested in proclaiming the gospel telling others about Jesus, and this in the midst of affliction and persecution. It's a real act of love to do that. We want to give you the best we have, and the best we have is our Jesus. But it says something interesting here. 
Verse 10, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. But then this, but we urge you, brethren, to to excel still more. Excel more. How does that sound to you? I could say something very truthful to you. You are a wonderful congregation. You're loving towards one another. You serve. I mentioned earlier all the things that people are doing that you may not even know about. Just humbly, quietly, people are serving. People are encouraging to one another. They uh, look out for one another. If they don't agree, they let you know kindly and patiently. And sometimes they say, you know, it doesn't matter. Let's do it your way. It's a wonderful group of people. So I could say, you are such a loving group of people, but you know what? You got to do a bit more. That's what Paul is saying here. You're wonderful Thessalonians, but excel still more. There's always more to go. It it began really in chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually are doing, see the same thing, that you excel still more. There's always more to go in the Christian walk. We don't arrive being sanctified or being holy is not a one-and-done kind of a thing. We sometimes think that. You know, I prayed a prayer and I'm done. It's not the way it is. We're, we're growing, excel still more in pursuing holiness and peace. And now it's talking about excel in growing in love. Get better and better. There's more to do even in loving one another in this church. Keep growing. Keep growing in love. So that means look forward. That means look ahead. Don't rest on your laurels. Here's all the things I do. Here's all the things I've done. Wow, am I a loving person? And you are a loving person. But now look ahead. What more is there to be done? There's a hint here in the Thessalonian letters, this one and the next one, that loving one another in the Thessalonian church, just like any church, was more challenging than you might expect. I think we could honestly say not everybody is equally lovable, right? Don't look at anybody right now, but just, <laughs> just be careful. But we know that that's true. And, and so here in the Thessalonian church, we have hints of that. You know, the church is, if I can paraphrase Forrest Gump, church is like a box of chocolates, right? And you pick one and you eat it. You're not always sure what you're going to get. You may not like all the chocolates. I don't know, like sometimes you pick one, like the, those chocolates that have the gooey cherry in the center. I say, whose idea was this to think this was good? I, I don't know. I know some of you may love it, but for me, I, it doesn't do anything. And, you know, we're like a box of chocolates. And here it's saying we are to love everybody. It's love for the brethren. Isn't it something? I commend you for the love of the, all the brothers and sisters, all the chocolates. But it's harder to love some than it is to love others. I think it's hardest, harder, maybe I should say, to love those who are close by, easier to love those who are far away. I remember being a teen, and I, I remember a period of my time when my friends were telling me, you know, you're so easy to talk to. But I'd go home. I know none of you teens do this. I'd go home, I'd hole up in my room, and then if my parents asked me questions, I'd grunt out one-word answers. 
You know, it's easy to love those who are far away. Hard to love those that we are close to and that we live with. We feel, oh, we feel tremendous sympathy and pour out our prayers for the Christians in the Tibetan church, you know. But when it comes to somebody that's in the same sanctuary as us, that's a slightly different matter. It's hard, hard to love those in the same church. But that's what was happening in the Thessalonian church. There were some that were a little hard. Uh, There's hints of it uh, in this epistle and then the next one, but let me just uh, point you, if we could jump ahead to verse 11. It's saying to the Thessalonians, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, work with your own hands, just as we commanded you. As we read these texts, we know that some were unruly, chaotic, Chapter 5 of this epistle talks about it. Not coming under the authority or not recognizing the responsibility of others or the, the areas of responsibility that they had and creating a kind of a mess in the church. But here's two things that Paul specifically mentions in verse 11. Be ambitious to lead a quiet life. It's a kind of a strange expression ambitious to be quiet. But I think we know what it means that sometimes it takes work to just quiet ourselves down, to be still. It takes work to focus our mind where it's supposed to be focused and not have it running scattered everywhere here and there. Uh, Philip's translation puts it like this, be busy with your own affairs. You know, there are people who are busy with everybody else's affairs, every affair except their own. They're always looking at what other people have done. Do you really have to put that there? Why do you do it like this? I'll show you a thousand better ways to do it. Oh, I don't like that song. I don't like that. I don't, I don't like what you're wearing. I remember once somebody couldn't listen to anything I was saying because uh, at the end, this person told me, why do you have to wear a dark shirt with white buttons? Yeah, I mean, some people are just bothered by a lot of things that are going on. And and so here the instruction is, uh, just be quiet. Quietness of mind and soul. And you might find it challenging to love a person like that. Quietness. Not minds full of ideas for how others should live or work or minister or parent or anything else, but a quiet life. I I think we, we might say, in light of this text, that a nosy life is really a noisy life, isn't it? There's noise inside, and the scriptures are saying, attend to your own business, quietness. So apparently this was happening in Thessalonica, otherwise why would Paul have brought it up? Just people that are busybodies. And then the second thing he says is, work with your own hands, or attend to your own work. Uh, This is brought up several times. It's brought up in chapter 5 in this epistle, and again in the second epistle. It was happening. There was a problem with this in that church. Not everybody is doing what they're supposed to do. Some in this church, in Thessalonica, could work, but apparently were depending on others to support them. And they may have had good reasons. In fact, there's hints that these reasons could have been theological, especially in the second letter of Paul to Thessalonica, It's some who may have thought that the Lord's coming was just around the corner. You know, history's about to end. What's the point of working? 
You know, it's like those cults, you've heard about it. You know, some say the aliens are coming to get us. Some say it's the end of the world. So they sell everything they have, they quit their jobs, and they gather on a mountaintop to wait for it all to end. Something like that may have been happening. It's hard to love people that are foolish like that, confused like that. And it may be hard for you to love people like that. And so it says, it's hard, but they are to be loved. So it says, excel still more. Some people, are they taking advantage of the generosity of the church? Are there some people who are confused? Some who are foolish? Yep, that might be happening. That's true in every church from the beginning till now. But that's where we're going to get better at loving. We're going to keep growing in our ability to love until we see Jesus face to face. Excel more. That's the command for all our pilgrim days during this earthly our, our habitation on this earth. So, so that's the first thing. Love is never done. It's always growing. And that brings me to my second point, which is the reason. Because this love is godlike. Wow. You can't reach that in a day or two or in a week or two or in a decade or two. It takes a lifetime of the Holy Spirit working in us. So loving the lovely and also the idle, and also the confused, and also the weak, and also the unruly. How do we do that? This verse has a wonderful expression that you ought to underline. Why? Because it says we are taught by God. Look what it says. Verse 9, Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Amazing. I might say as an aside for those of you who are wondering about this, there are, there's more than one word for love used here. I'm not going into those details because these are words with overlapping meaning. And the main point I want you to focus on is that we're taught to love by God himself. God taught. Actually, there's one word there. It's not an expression as it is in English. It's we're God taught. Imagine that. We're all God-taught people when it comes to the, expression, to the loving of one another. How does God teach us? Let me point to two things, experience and then example. Uh, by experience, I mean that God teaches us. How are we God-taught? Well, he teaches us by actually loving us. I think you know what 1 John 4.19 says. I read it earlier. We love because he first loved us. So we Love, because we've experienced the love of God. I think we know uh, people who struggle to love others, maybe even struggle to receive love, because all they've ever known is some sort of mangled version of love. Maybe a cruel love. Remember this uh, young guy, a teenager who uh, was just full of fun, energy, very funny guy, Maybe a little mischievous, but uh, sometimes when I was talking to him, it, it was as though the lights would just go out in his eyes. There was some darkness in him. And I remember visiting him in his home, and his mother was there, and we were talking, and it was immediately clear what was going on. When she talked about this, this guy, her teeth would just clench. She was just so angry, full of, what can you say, wrath against him. And he was sitting on the floor just beneath her, 
just kind of looking down every time she started to talk. And then she would point her foot at him like this and then twist it as though it was a knife, you know, as clenched teeth stabbing her own son. Some people grow up with that kind of a hard to imagine, a cruel love. They never learn to love. Other people, of course, grow up with a manipulative love. Using guilt to get you to do what you want to do or feigning illness to gain your sympathy and again manipulate you into doing what you want to do. Other people have a using love. No delight in you, no joy in your company or who you are as a human being, just making use of you. How can you serve my needs? And if you grow up, Like that, if that's your past, that's your only experience, you may think, well, that's what love is. And some of us think, well, you know, I can't love, and I don't know how to experience love because that's all I've ever known. And some people end with that. But here's an amazing verse. We are God-taught. We're not trapped by our backgrounds. What we've experienced in the past does not determine whether or not we can experience or show love now because God himself is teaching us how to love. And our relationship with God is such that he pours his love into our hearts. We experience love as we've never experienced it. That's what Romans 5 verse 5 says. The love of God is poured into our hearts through the spirit whom he has given to us. We love because he first loved us. You see that? A powerful verse. Oh, I can't love. You don't know my background. Well, you can experience the love of God, begin to grow in your ability to love because you love because you've experienced the love of God, your Father. By experience, that's how he teaches us. But he also teaches us by example. The example of God is in the Bible, the revealed word, and it's also in person. The Word made incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Communion Sunday, and I think the most remarkable example of love that Jesus left us is the cross itself. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God speaks to us through the example. So Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love as I have loved you. You see, an example taught by God. In this case, by God incarnate. God in person is teaching us. Love one another as I have loved you. And you know, Jesus' disciples weren't all stellar, but he loved them. It's easy to love those who are nice to us, who care for you, who respect you, who listen to your ideas. But this is love for all the brethren. All of us together. All the chocolates in the box, you know. And that's the example that Jesus left us. The Bible also gives us many examples of, in the Old Testament, of the love of God. I could point out so many, but if you don't mind, let me just point to two The first one I point to is in Exodus chapter 34, uh, verse 6. You can read the whole chapter. It's one of the most remarkable chapters in the whole Old Testament because Moses has asked God, I want to see your glory. And God says, well, I'll show you the the after effects. I'll show you the uh, trailing uh, 
smoke from the glory as I pass by. And then here's what God says as he is passing by. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Now what's remarkable about this is that this is really a God talking about himself. One of the few, maybe the only place where God describes himself and says, this is what I am like. And it's such a remarkable statement that it's echoed over and over and over in the Old Testament. You can see it even in the books of Moses. You can see it in the Psalms. You can see it in the prophets. It's a remarkable self-revelation, and it's all about love. Slow to anger, long-suffering. That's what I'm like, God says. Slow to anger. So uh, as you look at the example of God, you say, well, what do I do when someone's hurt me, when someone contradicts what I want to do, someone undermines what I'm trying to do, someone disrespects me, someone walks all over me, and, you know, our, our expression is, well, no, no, I'm not hung, angry, I'm just hurt, we might say. But, you know, your mom used that word, right? But really, you're angry. You're angry. It's like Jonah. We're angry like Jonah when those who have hurt us are not being dealt with by God, that God is, well, he's slow to anger. Jonah was upset by that. In fact, he quoted this Exodus 34, 6 verse, but in completely a backwards way. He was praying to God, criticizing God for being too slow to anger. Oh God, look at these enemies of mine, the Ninevites. Why don't you squish them? I want to see them burnt and destroyed. And he was upset that God's love was so gracious and full of long-suffering. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Oh, God, enough of this long-suffering. Come on. These people are gossiping. They're slandering. They're undermining me. Just do away with them. But God's love is slow to anger, patient, and long-suffering. And he says to us, forgive one another as I have forgiven you. Show mercy to one another as I have been merciful to you. And so it's taught by God. See, this is a God-taught love. It's God-like. And so all through our lives, we'll be excelling more and more and more and showing this kind of love to one another. Here's a second example. <clears throat> You've, I, I hope, have read it at some point. I encourage you to go to the book of Hosea and uh, read this again. Because there, God asked this prophet Hosea to actually act out his love. Here, you be, we'll role play, you act the way I act towards my people. Act out my love. Hosea, he said, go marry Gomer. I know it's kind of a strange name, but that was her name. Go marry Gomer. Now it turned out Gomer was a prostitute. And Hosea did it. It was a picture of God's reaching love. There's no one that's beyond the reach of the Lord God. Even those who are spiritually far from him. So Hosea went out, married Gomer, and brought her home and loved her as his wife. But from the beginning, it was questionable what Gomer's relationship with Hosea was. Uh, it was questionable whether she was faithful. There was uh, real questions about whether the children that were born to them were really Hosea's children. But Hosea loved her. And then, strangely, Gomer left. She ran away. Oh, I'm not happy here. I'll find happiness somewhere else. 
You know what we do? We look for happiness in all the wrong places. And she ended up in slavery. And God said to Hosea, Hosea, go and buy her back. Redeem her. It's, a, it's that long-suffering love of God that never lets go. Never lets go. And so Hosea went and he found her on the auction block. You know, uh, typically a slave would be naked, being examined by everybody who's going to bid on her. And Hosea outbid everybody. And he brought her home, not as a slave, but as his beloved wife. That's the love of God. That's how God loves his people. That's how he loves you and me. In fact, when you look at the New Testament, you can see how neatly this drama that Hosea was a part of fits into what the New Testament says about us. Ephesians chapter 2 says we were dead in sin, far from him. And the Lord rescued us and set us on high where he is. Romans 5 says we were enemies, we were hateful, we didn't want to have anything to do with God. And God loved us and gave his life for us in Christ Jesus and brought us home. We were, we were, well, we were kicking and screaming, going against God, running away, trying to find happiness wherever we could. And this, this long-suffering, patient, merciful love of God drew us back home. I know that's your story. Many of you could tell that same story. Just like Gomer, God brought us home. I can't help but think of the uh, biographical statement that C.S. Lewis makes describing his own conversion. He describes himself at that moment as the most reluctant convert in all of England. He didn't come joyfully, but he, he came, he felt like he was forced. He compares himself to the prodigal son. He says, well, you know, the prodigal son at least came back on his own, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. Imagine that. Like Gomer, running away. God reaches us. Who can duly adore a love, of, a love like that? And this is the love of God, you see. This is the example that God... And now God is saying, okay, here's what Hosea did. He was acting out my love. I had him do what I would do for my people in his relationship to Gomer. Now you go and do the same. Love one another as God and Christ has loved you. And this is a God-like love. And so all our lives, we have to keep excelling more and more and more. So this love is never done. This love is God-like. And let me just close by saying this love is our witness to the world. Because of the nature of this love, this God-like love, it becomes our witness to the world. Love looks forward. What more can I do? Let me, let me ask you a very personal question. Who is your Gomer? Who is there, maybe even in this church, who has hurt you repeatedly? And you're afraid may hurt you again. Who has rejected every advance you have made to repair the relationship with him or with her? Who is it that has betrayed you, just like Gomer betrayed Hosea? Praise God, I know, I know you've done a lot to reach out to that person. You've prayed for that person. You've done many wonderful things like the Thessalonians 
For indeed, you do practice this love toward all the brethren. But he says this, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So I say, love's labor is not yet done. Keep praying. Keep asking God what you can do. Keep reaching out to that gomer that's in your life also. And that's the kind of love that makes us a witness to the world. First Thessalonians 4.12 says, doing all this so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. It's a, this behaving properly is a, a word you'll see is translated variously. It, I, I like the NIV captures the thought, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anybody. People notice when we're living with one another with proper love, when there's order, when we know how to care for people, but we also are not taking advantage of one another. It's a community, it's a, it's a village that God has created where people are living in love with one another. And to love even those who are <laughs> those cherry-filled chocolates for me, to love everyone is the is the witness that the world is surprised by. You know, everyone loves people that are lovable. You, you have groups of people that get together because they have the same hobbies, right? You have groups of people that get together because they have the same political views. You have people that get together because they agree on a particular theology, and when they don't agree, the ones who don't agree leave, and good. Now it's just all of us that agree on everything. It's easy to love those are lovable, who are just like you, who are agreeable to you. But what's remarkable is to love all the brethren. And that's our witness to the world. That's the God-taught love we'll be talking about here. Even to love those who have fractures and flaws that the Lord is still working on. To love them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our witness to the world. Uh, Jesus' disciples, well, just read the Gospels. They, they squabbled with each other. They were fighting with each other as Jesus was heading towards the cross. Can you imagine? And in his hour of need, they ran away or they betrayed him. They were gomers, right? They were gomers. But Jesus loved them to the end. That's what John chapter 13, verse 1 says. He loved them to the end. There's people that are hard to love. You have your gomers. They hurt you more than once. But growing to love them is God taught. And as we grow in that, it makes us more and more to be Jesus' disciples. And it marks us, it brands us as Jesus' disciples because we're doing something which is God-like. Here's how Jesus put it. John chapter 13, again, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. And then he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Isn't that remarkable? When we love like this, it says, by this, all people will know that all of you are the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We thank you, Lord, for this growing love that you're at work in us. We're not discouraged, Lord, because uh, of our immature love. We're not ready to give up because we haven't failed to love as you love. We know we're not God. But we do pray for ourselves that this command to excel more would also take up residence in our hearts. 
by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the outpouring of your grace, we would excel more and more every day. Grow us in love for one another, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. I quoted from Hosea. Uh, chapter 14 begins with this. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you stumbled because of your iniquity. And then it starts to encourage them with all the blessings that unfold to those who have returned, like you and like me. We've returned to the Lord. We've come to the cross. We've acknowledged that we did wrong and we've acknowledged that God did a great good in supplying us with all that was needed to win us back. So there's this blessing in Hosea and that's what I end with. May, may God make your life as beautiful as an olive tree, as fragrant as the cedars of Lebanon and may God make it blossom like a vine. Amen. Amen.